0: To the Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors, and other experts about what's helped them to work at their best and how we can create organisations where everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker, and award winning author of the Amazon best selling business book, The Future of Time. You'll find the show notes at helenbeadham.com, where you can also sign up for my insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and home. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello and welcome. This seventh episode of Series 6 of The Business of Being Brilliant. And if you were listening last week, you'll notice that I'm back to full throttle after losing my voice for several days. Our household has been a coughing fest for the past fortnight, with all of us coughing in synchrony, having fallen prey to the same autumn bug. I'm just glad I'm not sitting in an open plan office every day annoying my colleagues but I'm curious to know how office etiquette has evolved post-Covid when it comes to everyday bugs and ailments. Are you more likely to work from home if you have a cough or cold that isn't bad enough to take a sick day? Do you think twice about sitting next to a colleague who's under the weather? Are people expected to battle through the germs or are you more encouraged to take a day off to recover? I'm really interested to hear what's changing around office-based time and well-being, so do drop me an email or a message on social media and let me know what you're seeing. One of the biggest influences on well-being that I keep hearing people talk about is having too much to do all of the time, thanks to outsized jobs, competing priorities, and new tasks or side of-the- desk responsibilities being added but nothing ever being taken away the coolest well-being apps or thoughtfully curated well-being programs don't even begin to tackle this issue so where do you start well i can help you with that question and i'm excited to let you know that my free monthly webinars are resuming after an extended summer break and the next one will be on wednesday the 8th of november starting at 12:30 p.m. gmt for just half an hour. The topic is Tackle Team Overload and in it, I'll explain how to frame this issue so your boss will listen, how to help your team get more done in less time by applying some time intelligence and how to give your colleagues what they'll really value, their time back. The booking link is in the show notes and if you signed up to my mailing list, You'll receive the invitation direct to your inbox. I hope to see you there. I'll be running another free webinar on a different topic in early December. So join the mailing list now if you want to be the first to hear about that one too. Right, let's hear now from this week's guest, who is a leading authority on what it takes to develop high-performing teams. Spoiler alert, it's not about having the smartest strategy or the brightest people. All the most generous incentives it's about paying attention to something simple that many businesses are prone to overlooking and underestimating have a listen i'm super excited to welcome this week's guest to the show robin dunbar is professor of evolutionary psychology at the university of oxford an emeritus fellow of Magdalen college and an elected fellow Of the British Academy and the Royal Anthropological Institute, to name just a few very impressive hats that he wears. His research focuses on the evolution of sociality, particularly among primates and humans. And if you've heard of the concept of Dunbar's number, which is the limit on the number of relationships that we can manage, then you've come across his work. He's also widely known for the social brain hypothesis and the gossip theory of language evolution and his publications include 15 authored or edited academic books and 550 scientific journal articles. In addition, he's published a great deal of science print journalism in newspapers and magazines, and a dozen popular science books, including The Trouble with Science, How Many Friends Does One Person Need, and The Science of Love and Betrayal. We're going to be talking today about his most recent book, co-authored with Tracy Camilleri and Samantha Rocky titled The Social Brain The Psychology of Successful Organisations Welcome to the Business of Being Brilliant Robin
1: Well great to be here
0: I'm really delighted to be speaking with you on the show today and that's a really I did not even read all the titles out but you have published a very impressive number of books and clearly the fact that you've got a new one out this year it says that your appetite for writing and getting books and your thinking out into the world is undimmed at this point.
1: I sometimes describe myself as a failed novelist not that I well no I have tried but I've never had any anything like that published and but I discovered that publishing science is much more fun and much easier.
0: <laughs> what, then, what would it be if you were to, to write that, that novel? Would it be crime or a different genre?
1: No, no. I, I think really the nature of the social world in the end, because that's what underpins everything I do. I mean, yeah. it's just extraordinarily fascinating. And I suppose that would just be an extension of my research, in fact, trying to work through some of the implications at the level of how we interact with each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm loving the sound of some of those other science books of yours that I haven't read yet. So I'm definitely going to be looking out for those. And what I didn't mention in the introduction is that you've got a career of two halves, if I'm right. You spent the first half of your career, spending a lot of time in Africa, studying primates and other animals and understanding how they form as social groups and how they interact. And then second half career, more focusing on human social interactions in organizations. Is that right?
1: Yes, basically. I suppose the first 25 years was spent in Africa. I actually grew up in Africa, so I'm very familiar with a lot of these species. It was trying to understand both primate societies and antelope societies as well. And then the second half really was a switch into human behavior, not so much human organizations, because that came later, if you like, but just trying to understand human behavior in the light of our growing understanding of how Animal societies actually worked and so that's the second twenty five years was really f- focused more on humans than on animals, but gravitating eventually towards organizations
0: okay yeah, that makes sense and the book the Social Brain combines that science of our evolutionary biology with how we can better manage life in organizations today, and you draw both on your research, obviously, but also on the many stories and examples that you and your co-authors have spoken to participants about on your Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme. Is that right?
1: Yes. Uh, my two co-authors here are, are practitioners in a business organisation, really, and consultancy. And they have their own consultancy, and they run this very high-level senior leadership course at the Oxford Business School. And and I suppose what they're doing is providing the practical experience and, and insights that they've acquired over the course of their careers with my scientific insights, if you like, and we're trying to marry the two together. And, and it's one of those cases of a marriage made in heaven, because it turned out they, from a practitioner's side and me from an academic side, have been converging on exactly the same place. So we went, oh, my goodness, that looks very much like what I've concluded. And hence the book coming out. But I guess it was because all three of us felt that businesses and organizations generically were not viewing their organizations as social communities. And as a result, they were, in many respects, wasting huge quantities of potential by not drawing on the capacity that organisations have when they are, if you like, villages or communities that that work together.
0: Yeah, Uh, and I can imagine it must have been so satisfying and intellectually, you know, fascinating to bring you and your co-authors kind of respective focuses together and really apply that. And we're going to get dig deeper into, so what does that mean around viewing organizations better as, or understanding them better as social communities and, and how people who run businesses or manage teams can apply some different practices and thinking to really help people belong more, feel a stronger sense of belonging and interact more in a more enriching way together, and perform better. But before we get into some of that, I'd love to just start a little bit from basics in terms of, I wondered if you might explain to people briefly what the Dunbar number is and how it works and what it means, because I know that's quite a foundational point in the book.
1: Yes, um, I, this is the the um, skeleton, if you like, of of the whole of our view and the whole of the book. So Dunbar's number is the natural size of human groups so every species in effect has its Dunbar number. It's the size of groups where things work most efficiently. You have a group that's too small or too large somehow it just falls apart. There's a sweet spot and that sweet spot turns out to be about 150. So in real life personal terms that's pretty much the number of extended family members and friends that you have meaningful relationships with. So you make an effort to keep up with them, even if it's only once a year at Christmas, but you think about it and you make that little bit of effort. It turns out that the number number has two important components. One is the fact that it's actually predicted by the size of our brain. And it turns out that each of us has a slightly different variance, so we're not all 150 people, people. that's the average of the population. Some of us work better with a slightly smaller number, some with a slightly bigger number, but not massively different. But the variation across individuals actually does depend on the size of particular parts of the brain that manage social relationships. There's a real cognitive underpinning to this. And secondly, so include more and more people but the size of the wave declines as you go further out so the emotional intensity of the relationships involved at each layer each ripple become less and less and less until you get to 150 and then we might think of 150 as just friends as opposed to best friends or good friends um beyond 150 you run into a qualitatively different kind of relationship something we might think of as an acquaintance so you know your favorite barista that you get your latte from on the way to work. If you still go into work, with whom you exchange a few pleasantries, and barista knows what your order is before you even ar- arrive through the door, and is already making it up for you. It's that kind of relationship. But you wouldn't invite them home to to your big five zero party. Maybe. Yeah. So the, the the difference really between people within the one hundred and fifty circle and the outside is people that you. Think uh, would think of as the the natural group of people to invite to your big once in a lifetime party. So I don't know, weddings, christenings. I dare say funerals. Eventually, they're, 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 you won't invite them, but they will turn up out of obligation. Yeah. Uh, to you, and beyond the hundred and fifty, there isn't any kind of pull that, that that will create that sense of obligation. And that really is a, a also a kind of hinge point in terms of altruism. So you're much more willing to help any of these people out within the 150 circle if they ask you to help them or lend them some money or whatever. But beyond that, you think twice and, and relationships become much more transactional. Well, I'll help you, providing you promise to come and help me with something equivalent next week. Or maybe perhaps you pay me for it now. So these kind of transactional relationships as opposed to relationships of obligation that we have with our our main community of friends and family.
0: Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And when I was reading the book, I was struck by some of the characteristics of the smaller groups that you talk about. For example, I think you said 40% of our social time is typically devoted to just the same five people, which... That's a massive amount. I mean, (laughs)
1: yeah, that really made me think. What what creates the layers or the ripples, if you like, pursue that analogy, is actually the time you invest in them. So the quality of the friendship, the emotional quality of the friendship, the, the cognitive quality in the sense of your sense of obligation and reciprocity with the person seems to be almost entirely dependent on how much time you invest in the relationship. So we allocate our social capital, and that seems not to matter whether you measure that in terms of time spent with them, how often you phone them, how often you Facebook them, uh, um, how often um, uh, you engage in any other kind of interaction with them, uh, what your emotional feelings towards them are you get pretty much the same picture. That inner core, so these layers have very specific numbers. They're 5, 15, 50, and 150. That inner core of five people, the people you might think of as your intimate friends or your best friends, something like that, they do seem to, between them, uh, account for about 40% of your total social capital. And the the next 10 people that make up the second layer, the 15 layer, because these layers count cumulatively. So the 15 people in those first two layers take up about 60% of your total time investment and therefore your total emotional investment. But what's important here and what therefore is important for creating functional teams and even organizations as community is the time that you invest in building the relationship. Now, there's I hasten to say, in some sense doesn't necessarily mean you have to spend enormous quantities of time in face-to-face conversations with them. It's actually just, at some level, it's just being there with them in a social context, as it were. And some of these contexts can be, well, I think, surprising, but maybe we'll come on to them.
0: Yes. And um, I know you said there are kind of some gender differences that play out. Men typically have more male friends and contacts in their social groups and the same or reverse for women. And it's not just that those closer mm-hmm. contacts or in the smaller groups matter more in some respects. Actually, there are some real benefits you get from contacts in your wider social group, right? Because they're more likely to bring in... Fresh thinking, different ideas, link you to new possibilities and new people.
1: Yes. Well, at the end of the day, it seems that each of these layers, the 5, 15, 50, 150, the people in the layer, as opposed to the layers inside it, provide us with different benefits. We always refer to the inner core of five people as your shoulders to cry on, friends, because they're there as the cavalry to come riding over the hill When your world falls apart and everybody else has abandoned you, your quality of your relationship with them is such that they will literally drop the baby to come and pick you up. Whereas further out, people will go, well, actually, I've got stuff to do with the baby first. (laughs) Um, And they start prioritizing uh, your importance to them against the other things they have to do in their lives. So that inner core really seems to be your emotional support group you might think of in that that sort of way. Further out, uh, in the outer layer, the outer circle, as it were, of the 150, these seem to be more a case of information transmission. So it's where you learn new stuff about the, the wider universe out there because they're the people who are out checking with the cheapest petrol deals stations, or seeing new stand-up comedians that that you might be interested in. And that information filters in to you from the outer layers so that you you then go and benefit from these things. So that, in some sense, is passive information flowing in towards you from the outside, but it plays a very important role. So this is a key distinction that sociologists made some decades ago, between weak and strong ties. The strong ties are the ones in the center that provide you social and emotional support. But the weak ties in the periphery play a, a different but equally important role in providing you with access to wider source of information. That partly is about diversity in a sense, but diversity itself doesn't necessarily have to be from within your own network. That can come from much further out. Um, And it's clear that in a business and even a research context, diversity, meaning just different um, experience backgrounds, um, is very important in terms of how effectively um, work groups, let's call them work groups, actually function because they do bring in people, people from a different background do bring in new ideas, which you had not thought about. Most of the great Developments in science have been a consequence of people from another field peering over the parapet and going, oh, that looks interesting. <laughs> it looks like something we know something about. And, and it turns out then that, that uh, the meeting of minds produces some great new conceptual discovery. So it's certainly important. Diversity does, in that sense, Play important, but it's probably a wider use of the term diversity than is currently the case in human resources.
0: Yeah, it has a very particular description, and you talk about that a bit in the book about diversity and inclusion and belonging and the differences between those. So I guess so far we've been talking more about the Dunbar number and thinking about networks and group size from the perspective of us as an individual. But if we turn more to talk now about what does that mean if we're managing a team or running a business, uh, how can we usefully apply some of this thinking and what difference is it going to make to us in our work groups? One of the things that you talk about in the book is how we, t- we typically treat time at work as infinitely expandable and work is piling up, rarely taking stuff away. New bits of organization, our organisation sprout periodically and old bits don't get closed down and, and how our focus is very much on efficiency and the short term. And, and those are all things I wrote about in my book, The Future of Time. So I'm particularly interested in this. And you, you use a lovely expression about how leaders today need to be time lords. And I assume by that you mean much more Aware of how we're using our time and how we're investing it and what the benefit is out of investing in different types of interactions and activities.
1: Yes. Well, I suppose that was that was in particular a warning, if you like, to senior leaders not to micromanage the organization. They have to be able to trust the people under them to deal with the details. Their job is to see the bigger picture. And part of that bigger picture is really managing um, not only their own time, because most of them suffer from excruciatingly tough schedules that for their own (laughs) peace of mind, but probably also the better functioning of their organization, they could do without those kind of pressures. They would benefit by having time out to be able to ponder and reflect, and that really should be their job. But the whole issue of time is fundamental really and I suppose that's the second theme that underpins the book so the first theme is the numbers get your numbers right and there's something magical about those numbers that will cause work groups of that size to gel extremely effectively but your choice of number depends on the task design of the work that you're trying to deal with one number doesn't fit all kinds but the way you create these numbers Is important too, and that's this process of bonding, the creation of relationships that involves the investment of time. So, we are very struck by the fact that my co authors spend a lot of time trying to persuade the senior leaders that they talk to and and have on their courses to pay attention to is that we tend to have this view, what I might call an accountant's view of the efficiency of organizations so you've got some input and you've got some output and one of the things that never gets mentioned let alone measured is social time interaction time but if you're dealing with organizations you're dealing with a community it's a village no matter what else it might be doing it's a village and the efficiency with which it's going to work and do its job and even come up with clever new ideas depends on the quality of the relationships between the members of that village um, and the way you build those relationships is through casual social interaction now that's casual meetings mm. around, around uh, what used to be the xerox machine or the water cooler but probably this long since disappeared but it's the casual meetings in the corridor that, that turned out to be important or so in the cafeteria so providing those opportunities Probably is the most important thing that a senior leader might turn his or her mind to, <laughs> rather than the input-output chart that,
0: yeah. <laughs> that they
1: just been shown, because um, it actually might pay dividends in a way that nothing else will that you can possibly do in terms of trying to make the system work. And it, it's a we have this view of organizations uh, which is very mechanical, if you push or pull here or there or press that button, people will work harder. And the answer is (laughs) no, not necessarily. They'll work harder out of a sense of obligation to the other people they work with. But if they don't have that sense of obligation, they're not going to be prepared to put themselves out and they will only have that sense of obligation if they really have met and know and understand those other people through social context. I'd say, you know, that happens all the time, of course, when you meet in, around a table, for example, at a committee or something like that. It's a sort of casual exchange, but you have to make a little bit more effort. I mean, that is yeah. an extremely slow and clunky way to expect these organic processes of the creation of friendships to actually happen. You've got to engineer it a little bit more by providing more specific and directed social then There are lots of examples of how that that can be done.
0: Yes, I love that idea, just more consciously engineering time and you make the point that actually if we don't keep consciously investing time in bringing people together in social ways, not just to do a task as quickly as possible, actually over time those relationships degrade and I guess we saw some yeah. of that going on during the pandemic where people were joining new organisations and finding it quite hard to build those relationships and a lot of people also moved on after a while yes, when, when
1: some extraordinary number of uh, new intake moved on or left perhaps out of frustration without ever having met anybody else except on Zoom and Zoom with all the best will in the world is not an environment in which to build relationships so it was, I think it was something like two-thirds of new staff had left before meeting anybody yeah. else. It's extraordinary.
0: It is extraordinary. And for the individuals, it must have been an extraordinary experience as well, and, and probably one that rarely gets repeated.
1: Yes. And, well, I've been very struck for some time by this pandemic of loneliness that's mm. been there bubbling away in the system for probably three decades now. So that's three decades ago mm. it was first picked up mainly in the 20-somethings group. So it's in new starters, young graduates moving away from college or university, invariably to a job in a big city somewhere that is a completely strange environment for them. They don't know where to go to meet people. The only people they know are the people at work who, of course, already have their social lives uh, and want to rush home at five o'clock to... uh, the children up from school, or, or uh, put the babies to bed, or whatever it may be, or, or, or meet up with their friends. They don't necessarily have space in their sh- social schedules to accommodate new people. So the result has been a lot of people sitting in bed sits, moping, I suppose, and getting more depressed. And the knock-on consequences of that are, are just eye-watering, because it means they're taking more time off work, pressures being put on their colleagues to fill those gaps, The whole system is paying an enormous price, some pounds for for major industries, with no end in sight. And and, and the solution is very simple. It's providing a social environment which at least allows newcomers to get a foot in the door somewhere as a stepping stone to building their own natural friendship communities, both inside and outside the organisation. And it doesn't take a lot of time and effort. Um, well, it takes a bit of effort to, to engineer it, as you might say, but it doesn't necessarily have to take up a lot of time. I mean, there are some very nice and, uh, examples of this um, um, that involve just the formation of choirs, for mm. example. Singing has this magical property of that an hour spent community singing, and I, I, I don't mean <laughs> BBC, Philharmonic, Choir singing Bach cantatas, I just mean casuals singing for the pleasure of it, even if you can't sing terribly well, it has this remarkable effect of creating relationships after just an hour of singing that the individuals think they've known each other since primary school practically. It's, it's quite extraordinary. The other very simple one was was one that uh, Sam Rocky, one of my co-authors, when she worked for the big brewing giant South African breweries, as they were then, uh, SAB Miller, as they subsequently became. Because uh, SAB were were brewers, they simply put a pub in in the foyer of every building. And she said those opportunities for people to meet casually over a, a, a drink on the way home, as it were, at the end of work and uh, a quick drink and, uh, on the way home. It produced extraordinary sense of community mm. within the organisation and, and she said some of the Facebook pages that were set up for people in those, those groups are still going 20 years later. Yeah,
0: it's incredible.
1: After everybody's left the company and scattered all over the four corners of the universe. It's all about providing opportunity and space as much as anything else. And often the solutions are very, very simple.
0: Yeah. So for people listening, thinking about the design of their office space, some good, light-filled communal spaces that are for informal social interactions, but also, as you're talking about, actually synchronous rather than asynchronous social interactions whether that's singing together eating together even just playing together having a table football somewhere that people can just go and do the conversations that might spark around that would be great
1: yeah and uh, it's important to remember i mean lots of companies have tried this and made little comfy areas and very often they're unfilled (laughs) <laughs> because somebody's seen the importance of providing the opportunity, but they've not gone that one step of making sure it's exploited. Yes. So you have to build the culture up that it's a good and useful thing to do. And, and that's really the, the subtlety of the whole issue, I think, is yeah. making sure that it actually is exploited by the people who are the target community.
0: Yeah. So if, if you're a person who's leading or managing or or influential in some way, inviting other people to join you in that space regularly, being seen there regularly, it will send really positive signals that actually time spent in that space and time spent off the task, formally off a task and informally just interacting actually is really valuable time. And it's seen as a good thing to do and a, a useful thing to do, both for relationships, for quality of thinking, for well being, just generally for a thriving community and a thriving yes. business.
1: It's worth remembering, actually, that, well, I don't know whether they understood why they were doing it, but if you look back at the original factories of, of the great late Victorian, early Edwardian. Uh, industrialists, the Cadburys, the Unilevers, or mm. now Unilever, it was Lord Leverhulme in the, those far-off days. They made a big effort to provide on-site things which would engage people socially. So every uh, factory, every railway um, station had its club with a tennis club because mm. tennis was very popular in those days. Probably wouldn't work now, but there are many other things that, that you could substitute. But they made big efforts to do that, you know, to provide better quality housing. Of course, the famous Cadbury estates, the Leverhulme estates for their workers, to put in there as well, not just housing, but community centers where clubs could meet to engage intellectually, where people could come and eat together. And eating together is surprisingly important. Well, just as an aside, one of our bits of advice. Um, to people is very commonly we will have a very difficult negotiation meeting and then go out and eat afterwards. And the answer is that's the wrong way around to do it. <laughs> if you eat first, the negotiation will just flow beautifully.
0: Yes. <laughs> because
1: eating creates a sense of belonging and bondedness, which is almost as good as singing together. You probably don't want to go singing with your difficult <laughs> negotiators, but inviting them for <laughs> lunch or dinner first uh, has pretty much the same effect and, and, and just makes the thing flow much better. Yeah. So providing those kind of environments, a so good, cheap <laughs> to encourage people to come, but good quality dining facilities, cafeterias or what have you, works wonders because it's about getting people to casually meet up by chance. It's, it happened happen just to be sitting on opposite sides of the table because there weren't any other spaces and get talking to each other and suddenly they discover common interests that would never have appeared in the normal course of everyday events.
0: Yes and thank you because you've shared so many really insightful and useful concepts and the science behind it and lots of practical examples as well. And for people listening, I would absolutely recommend you go out and get a copy of The Social Brain, particularly if you're thinking about how to create a more positive work culture or how to bring people back into the office in more meaningful ways, in ways that's going to make them want to come back to the office more often. There are tons of really specific suggestions in there about what you can do, both from office space to organizational habits to how you manage teams and and manage in groups versus out groups and all of that. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Robin. How can people follow your work if they are interested to hear more about the work you do? What's the best way to place for them to go to do that or if they wish to connect professionally?
1: (laughs) My books, probably, because I'm not terribly clued in in terms of the digital world, I have to confess. So I don't do Twitter and and all these other things. I am on LinkedIn and, and from time to time I do post things on there as they come up but I'm of an old fashioned generation that likes to see it in print, so I write books.
0: (laughs) Great, there you go. Well, there's a fantastic selection of your books to be choosing from. It's been fascinating talking with you, understanding how we can better view organisations as social communities, not waste our people asset by just thinking of them as really machines and that we want to sweat as hard as possible, but all the advice you've shared as well about how to manage relationships and group sizes and create a sense of connection in our world of work. You've been a brilliant guest, thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure for me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review, and share it with friends and if you like to watch as well as listen don't forget the videos are also on my youtube channel see you next monday have a great week and keep on being brilliant